stories from around the corner and around the country. You're listening to All the Best. Proudly supported by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders past and present, and also recognize that the area where FBI Radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance, and resilience for First Nations communities. This week, we're bringing you two stories from our regular partner, Queer Stories. First up, after a wild night of partying among fellow closeted friends, Patrick nearly loses the safe haven he has carefully created. A warning that this story includes some swearing. Um, I just realised sitting backstage with the other storytellers that I printed my story like on the smallest font you could possibly imagine. Um, And when I get nervous, and I'm always nervous on stage, you wouldn't think it, but I am, um, I tend to lose sight. So let's hope I don't fuck it up. This um, is a story uh, that I call Safe House. Patrick, big C? Patrick, is something wrong? Patrick, Patrick, where are you? We're at your front door. It's 5.59am and the sun's just come up. That's the voice of my then very conservative Arab mum with my very strict Arab dad standing beside her. They show up completely unexpectedly at the door of my house in Marrickville that I shared with an extended family member who's still not out. So I can't name her, but for tonight, let's call her Amra. Repeat after me. Amra. Good. It's the morning after we've just thrown the most debaucherous high camp party we'd ever known. There's groggy gays, drunk dykes, and tanked trans friends splayed all over the kitchen floor the lounge room, everywhere. They're out cold, littered with bodies, literally littered with bodies. The house looks kind of deathly, like a scene at the end of a violent video game. And the scenario that's about to unfold is life or death. Well, at least that's what it felt like at the time. Oh my God, what is going on? We've been knocking on the door for so long now and he's just not answering. Oh, something terrible's happened, I know it. Oh my God, what if someone's broken in and murdered him? God forbid, Lord have mercy, no! It's our fault, we should never let him move into the city. I'm going to go crazy. Why isn't he answering? Let's call the police. What's happened to my son? Patrick, what's wrong? Patrick, big she? Patrick, are you there? Nobody believes it when I say Arabs are really dramatic. (laughs) True story. The year is early 2000 and something. I'm just 21. A baby journo living in Western Sydney, not out to anyone except Amra and my ex-girlfriend. I think she's in the audience somewhere tonight, but that's a story for another time. (laughs) I just started working in the media. I wanted to move out of home to the city. Closer to my secret queer friends, but in some circles of our Arab culture, 
moving out before marriage is still taboo. There's this old adage that you only ever really leave the family home in a wedding dress or a tuxedo or in a coffin if you die before you get married. Morbid, I know, but still true for many. At first, my parents said, the city is where problem children go, children that have no values, children that end up on drugs or die of AIDS. You cannot go and live in the city. Many weeks after my campaign to move out began, Amra announces she's bought a house. And it's not next door to her parents. You see, my brother had just bought a house four doors down from my folks for his wife and five kids. That's what my parents hoped for me one day too. Much to everyone's shock, Amra had bought a house, have a guess where, in the city. <laughs> you see, Amra is a widow. That too is a story for another time. Buying a new house of her own was seen as something that would help her move forward. So it wasn't frowned upon so much. I'm the only person who knew that although Amra was widowed after being with a man, years later, she'd grown close to a woman who she's still in a relationship with today. Anyway, Amra's new house needed extensive renovation. In comes gay cliche, Pat, who loves a renovation. <laughs> still true to today. My folks adore her. They'd move mountains for her. After her great loss, they wanted to help and protect her however she needed. So Amra and I colluded, spinning a story that she needed my help renovating the house, and because my new job in the media was, have a guess where? In the city. And very close to her home, it made sense that I would go and live with her. It would make her feel safe having a man in the house. Little did they know her butch dyke girlfriend is more masked than I'll ever be. <laughs> She's a boss. But boom, there it was. The magic word, safe. In my parents' mind, women should never live alone. And ironically, all they ever wanted for Amra and I was to feel safe and to be looked after. So permission granted to move out. Well, sort of. I would sleep at Amra's house a few nights a week, but I still had to go home for a couple of nights. It wasn't moving out. They'd tell the community I was doing a good deed helping Amra so there'd be no shame or shade thrown on my parents for letting me leave the house before marriage. What they didn't know is that Amra's city house would quickly become a refuge for many other closet gay wogs, Lebanese, Greek, Italian, Iraqi, Christian, Muslim, Maronite, a real mixed bag of queerbos that found solace in our chosen family because we couldn't be out to our own. Amra became our femme lesbian matriarch, the home she created was the only truly welcoming place we knew. Although we were all carrying the huge burden of lying to our families all the time, the dreamy days and uninhibited nights spent at this house were some of the most formative of my gay life, a freedom I and many of my new friends only knew in the confines of the four walls of Amra's house. We laughed, we danced, we fucked, we cried, we shed the pain that comes from living a double life being stuck between two very complex worlds. And then, just months into this homo haven we'd all found, came that knock at the door. It was 5.59 a.m. Remember, it was the night after one of our biggest, messiest, gorgeous, gay extravaganza house parties. My parents were banging on the door for at least 10 minutes before it woke me. 
Thankfully, all 25 closet queer wogs scattered across the floor, still high, still reeling from that glorious night, were all too rooted to move or get up. But Amra and I are now wide awake because we hear my mother's voice get louder and louder. I start to see what's about to happen, and the doom sets in. We'd all be outed, this place would sink, our lives would be ruined. And I just couldn't let that happen. Through frosted glass panelling on the top half of the front door, my parents can see waist up down a long corridor that runs the length of the bedrooms and the lounge room. The kitchen and bathroom are tucked away at the back of the house. If someone stands in the corridor or walks out of either bedroom, you'll see their shadow right away. Amina's in her bedroom right by the front door with her Lebanese Muslim girlfriend. I'm in the bedroom next door with my Catholic Italian boyfriend. <laughs> Amina and I don't have our phones. They're dead, sitting somewhere on the kitchen table beneath sticky bags of all kinds of substances and empty bottles of tequila. Neither of us can leave our rooms because if we do, my parents will see us and we'll have to open the front door. How would we explain the girl-on-girl or boy-on-boy coupling asleep all over each other in every fucking room? How would we even wake everyone up to get them out in time? What a conundrum. The knocking at the door doesn't stop, but my mother's shouting finally has. I hear her on the phone trying to call the police. <laughs> They've now been out there for 15 minutes. That's what it felt like. All that's in my head is, fuck! Amra laid on the floor in her room and I laid on the floor in mine. We both opened the door just enough to whisper to one another, what the fuck do we do? <laughs> Amra's tears started and the sound of my closet boyfriend's teeth chattering was unnerving. I had to do something, so I gently pulled my bedroom door open more, just enough to sneak my slinky, laid upon the floor body through. I was twink skinny back then, I promise. I slithered like a snake on my gut down the hallway, waking bodies in the lounge room with an aggressive whisper, wake the fuck up, we're gonna get busted and we need to get out of here right now. My parents are at the front door and they're calling the cops. They think I'm in here dead. You see, what my parents didn't know is there's a laneway at the back of the house. No time for questions, just do what I say and you will live. Meanwhile, my boyfriend had been frantically texting everyone we knew who wasn't there and owned a car, telling them to get to the back laneway as quickly as they could. His phone had 4% battery left. I distinctly remember seeing that. Just enough juice to get enough responses back that assured us everyone would be able to jump in a car and make a quick getaway. Amra and her girlfriend slither down the hallway and push everyone through the back door like cattle being herded. Many had no clothes on, a bra and undies at most. There was no time to get dressed. They jumped the fence, some pile into two cars that made it to the rescue mission. Others just ran up the laneway as quickly as they could. I looked around at the mess in the kitchen, grabbed a big black garbage bag and scooped up what I could and threw it in a cupboard. Just when I thought, fuck, this is going to work. We might get out of this okay. I hear my dad say to my mum at the front door, there must be a back laneway. All these city houses have back laneways. Fuck! Dad sets off to the laneway. I jump in the shower and soak myself silly. Then I bolt to the front door in a towel and open up to my mother screaming, saying, oh my God, you're alive. I just called the police. I thought you were dead in here. It had only been 15 minutes, remember. <laughs> Arabs aren't dramatic at all. Apologizing profusely to mum, I said I had music on in the shower and didn't hear the knocking until just now. I'm so sorry, mum, I'm so sorry that I'd woken up early to clean the house that we'd ha as we'd had some of Amr's work colleagues over the night before. That would explain the mess, I'd hoped. 
While mum rings the cops back to cancel the emergency call at my request, my dad comes back through the front door telling me I should be careful because it seemed like some dodgy business was going down in the back lane just up from my house with half-naked people piling into cars. And at this point, I laughed so hard, saying, yeah, that sounds like something that had happened around here. It's the city, Dad. You know, weird shit happens here. We all laugh together, and my mum says, oh, thanks God you're okay and you're not hanging around with people like that. Now, why is this house such a mess? In Arabic, give me a broom, I'll clean up. Lol, that really was the icing on the cake. Having my mum clean up after what went on the night before was a godsend because the place was fucking gross. So I put on a rakwe, that's a cough of, uh, pot of Arabic coffee on the stove. My mum swept and mopped and dusted and dried the dishes while my dad fixed some broken electricals in the lounge room and changed some blown light bulbs. Lo and behold, Amra walks in the front door in active wear saying, oh, what a beautiful morning. <laughs> I've been out running in the park. Such a great workout. What a surprise to see you here, Tante and Ammo, uncle and auntie in Arabic. I love a subhiyya, which is Arabic for early morning surprise. Shall we make some breakfast, she says. We all sit down at the now Mr. Sheen clean kitchen table. And my mum asks Amra about how she's feeling in the house. Amra replies, it's the safest I've ever felt in my life. Actually, I'm thinking about getting a sign out the front. You know those ones they put on these old city houses? And I wanted to say, safe house. Thank you. Just a little, um, thank you so much. Just a little postscript that I want to say, um, it's really important for me to share this, that my mum and dad have come a very long way since this story, especially my mum. You know, she's now my biggest supporter, my absolute rock. And we have the most incredible relationship, which I feel incredibly grateful for. She's the most extraordinary person in the world. She really is. I think a lot of people think their mum is the greatest person, but my mum is really the greatest person. <laughs> and I will get off the stage before I start crying, become a hot mess. She's really grown to become such an incredible advocate for the queer community. And she's literally saving lives every day with the work that she does in her own little way to educate other Arab parents on accepting and embracing their gay children. So I wouldn't be who I am today without her support. She deserves all of that applause. I love you, Mum. I love you, Amra. Thank you so much for being incredible humans who inspire me to be better every day. And thank you for listening. That story was told by journalist, documentary director, and TV host, Patrick Aboud. It was originally performed at Riverside Theatre for Sydney World Pride. A heads up that this next story contains swears, references to drug use, and sex. Stephen has so many slutty stories to tell, but somehow he whittles it down to just three. Hi, I'm Stephen, and I'm a slut. <laughs> Thank you. Now, you're either thinking, is this a sex addict meeting? Is this queer stories or rear stories? <laughs> oh, is he still fucking milking that? <laughs> or most likely, why, yes, you are, Stephen Oliver. Yes, you are indeed. And although I'd agree with those thinking the latter, 
you sluts. I feel the need to point out that when it comes to the S word, I do need to stress that the word slut means a myriad of things when integrated into the everyday or even every minute conversations had by the very sexy Aboriginal race. Thank you. So, to make the point of this cultural and linguistic phenomenon of taking English words and evolving them into multiple interpretations, I'm going to share a few stories. And if I pull this off, not like that, then hopefully you will see how words can be transformed, seemingly born of a cocoon like some beautiful slutty butterfly, or perhaps a slutterfly <laughs> that doesn't just spread its wings or legs but also a cultural awareness as you learn how sometimes a slut, even a proper one, isn't a slut, but is. <laughs> Chapter one, the biggest slut of all. And I don't mean me. So here I was, a 19-year-old Murray kid who had just left his home of Townsville and moved to Perth, where he was going to become a dancer. Although I danced my ass off in class, I was also enjoying shaking my ass quite freely in Perth gay bars, liberated by the fact that nobody knew me in Perth, and even more liberated by the fact that in 1994, there were no smartphones, camera phones, digital or social media, free from the worry of being outed by Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and whatever the fuck other social media there is nowadays. The locations of this liberated ass shaking was in two venues, the Court Hotel and Connections Nightclub. It was in these two establishments that, in a space of three weeks from first moving to Perth, I had shared some quick hellos to members of the gay Noongar Aboriginal community. However, it was one particular night that would lead to my lifelong friendship with the biggest slut of all. His name? Charlie. I spent my first night hanging out with Charlie because of pity, which is strange to say because Charlie isn't someone who needs pity. To me, he's always been a fighter, and I mean that in every sense of the word. Though this night, instead of seeing a fighter, I saw a Noongar brother sitting on a chair crying, looking real sad, or as Noongar mob would say, real winyan. Or as we of the Murray community would say, darn, sorry one. But yes, you get it. The bitch was sad. Now, with me being the kind, compassionate, nosy bitch I am, I approached Charlie and asked, which way? I said, you right? To which he replied, I'm a dog. I'm a dog. Nobody wants to hang with me. I'm here all by myself. My best friend left me for a man. I'm a dog. Feeling real darn sorry one for him. I mentioned that I had been paid that day. Hang with me, I'll shout you, child. You'll be right. But before I could even get an answer, he spotted a container laying on the other side of the hallway. He asked, what's that? Left from the chair as if wallabies were his totem. Picked up the cylindrical container, popped its lid, revealing the multiple white pills that lay inside. To which he declared... I'm going to kill myself. Reacting in a way that one Aboriginal person does to another when hardly knowing each other in such situations, I said, don't be stupid. Either not hearing my plea or ignoring it altogether, he emptied half the container's contents into his hand, shoved them all into his mouth and started to chew. Shocked, 
I once again reacted how one Aboriginal person does to another one hardly knowing each other in such situations and said, get him out of your mouth, fuck ya. <laughs> if I wasn't shocked enough already, his next statement created an atmosphere of surprise and bewildering confusion when he said, but they taste nice. <laughs> what? I asked. They taste nice, he repeated, seemingly unaware that I was at a loss as to what to do. Not that I needed to work out a solution to the predicament, because before I could say katwara nunga, katwara meaning womba, which means crazy, meaning mad black bitch, <laughs> another black fella arrived on the scene. And in a way that seemed to imply he didn't really care but was curious enough, asked, what you mob doing? This was Joshi, another member of the gay Noongar Aboriginal community who I'd never met before. This unfamiliarity had me react how one Aboriginal person does to another when never having met before. As I exclaimed, this silly son is trying to kill himself with pills. <laughs> Refusing to take them out, not as an act of defiance, but rather one of enjoyment, Charlie again declared, but they taste nice. Unfazed by my words and intrigued by Charlie's, Joshi grabbed the container and emptied two pills into his hand. Grabbing one of the pills, he says to me, come on, you take one too. We all die together. <laughs> Again, reacting in a way one Aboriginal person does to never having met before, I replied, fuck you, I'm not dying for no slut. <laughs> Still unfazed, Joshi chucks a pill into his mouth and unsure why I'm even still surprised at this point, says, Mmm, they do taste nice. <laughs> Urging me to snatch the container and say, Give me one of them sluts. After all, what harm could it do to put just one in my mouth? Hmm, where have I heard that before? <laughs> anyway, fortunately the harm these pills would cause turned out to be fuck all because what Charlie decided to overdose on was breath fresheners. <laughs> Prompting me to say, you silly sluts. <laughs> However, I would come to learn that this night would only be the first in a long line of simple slut scenarios. Chapter two, the littlest slut of all. And yes, I do mean me. <laughs> As time passed, I learnt the depths of friendship. Containing more than just laughter, there's sadness, hurt, jealousy, abuse, and expectations. All of which can lead to fights, but if the friendships are strong enough, there's also always forgiveness. Take one morning, for example, when a now 20-year-old Murray and two of his Noongar friends were getting a lift home by some white guy who had either offered us the lift or been coerced into giving us one. I'm guessing coercion due to one of the black queens hoping to get into his pants. Or, if I remember correctly, his tight AFL footy shorts. Obviously, he wore these to lure those who were made moist by footy players, which, of all the three passengers in the car, were all three passengers. <laughs> Regardless of how much moisture was in the car, though, it wasn't enough to douse the flames of jealousy. I'm unsure who started the whole debacle, but before long, it had turned into a screaming match between the two Noongar friends. It became so heated that if the car did actually have any moisture, it would have officially been a gay sauna. 
they yelled at the driver to stop. He pulled over and the argument spilled onto the footpath. The driver looked at me and said, do you think we should do something? I replied, believe me, it's best to just leave them alone. Ignoring my advice, he got out of the car and tried taking control of the situation, saying, hey, come on, guys, stop fighting, eh? This was met with, and who are you, cunt? (laughs) Fuck off back home to your man, cunt. (laughs) He returned to the car defeated and said, oh, my God, that really hurt me, eh? When he told me to fuck off back to my man. Like, I mean, I don't have a man, but it still really hurt, eh? (laughs) Perplexed by this statement, but still moist for him. I mean, what else would you expect from a drunk, horny 20-year-old me? I said, maybe we should go. To which he easily agreed. A few hours later, I returned to my friends and wondered what reception would I receive. They had argued over him. Yet I was the one who had reaped the rewards of Yorch, a.k.a. Buru, a.k.a. Manhood, a.k.a. Penis, if you haven't got it by now. <laughs> Would I receive the same anger displayed only hours before on the footpaths of East Perth? Would they forgive me for abandoning them for the all-important poke with man? Apparently they would. As most blackfellas do, they saw the humour in the situation and told me of how, as soon as the car drove off, They both stopped arguing, looked at the car driving away and said, that little slut. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Chapter three. Too many slut stories to tell. (laughs) I wished to share more stories with you, but being the long-winded slut I am, I used up too much time. Stories from communities all over this continent of ours. Stories I feel blessed to have been a part of. See, when people ask me where does my humour come from, I could claim that I'm naturally funny, much in the way that I'm naturally sexy, (laughs) but I don't. I realise my humour isn't just a personal coping mechanism, but one that comes from being a coping mechanism for Aboriginal communities, for queer communities and queer Aboriginal communities. Sometimes we've had to see the funny side of things, to not just stop the onslaught of sadness, but to survive. So now, I would like to take 15 seconds of silence so that all of us here can think of those who have made us laugh, of those we've made laugh, and appreciate that gift of laughter shared with those closest to you. So on that note, I'd like to leave you with at least one Brisbane story, seeing we are in Brisbane. But at the Wickham one night, back in the days when you could still smoke inside, I was on the dance floor yet again shaking my ass when my friend Gregory enters from outside, smoke in hand, 
dancing to the beat, eyeballs popping out of his mouth, and announcing in an extremely shocked manner, this woman just flashed me her pussy. <laughs> what? I asked, to which he replied, and it was glistening. <laughs> Much love, guys. Spread love, laughter, and even your legs, just like COVID. That story was produced by Stephen Oliver, an actor and comedian who is a descendant of the Gugu Yolanji, Wanyi, Gungalida, Wapabara, Bundalung, and Birupai peoples. The next Queer Stories event is on the 23rd of February at Riverside Theatre in Parramatta. Head to mavemarsden.com to get your tickets. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal Land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung lands and 8CCC on Arunde and Woramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun and Phoebe Adler-Ryan is our production manager. Our social media producer is Isabella Lee. Patrick McKenzie is our community coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and were made possible by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Madhura Prakash. Thanks for listening.